Hello, and thank you to the AUA for including pain management and FPMRS surgery as part of the program. My name is Nithya Abraham. I'm a urologist specialized in FPMRS at Montefiore Medical Center. I'm a speaker at your event, but there's no conflict with regard to this talk. Just recently, a six-year-old male was referred to me for chronic pelvic pain. He reported a history of spinal surgery back in 2000 for lower back pain, and after the surgery, suffered significantly more pain, for which he was prescribed Percocet and Vicodin. And unfortunately, with his increasing and worsening pain, he was prescribed higher doses and increasing quantities of the Percocet and Vicodin. And this led to a vicious cycle in which the pain addressed with narcotics led to tolerance and ultimately physical dependence and hyperalgesia in which the brain became hypersensitive to pain signals from anywhere in the body that would usually be considered mild or unimportant. And so with trying to stop opioids, the pain often it's experienced is worse, leading to the psychological dependence, ultimately reaching back to pain. Now he's on buprenorphine for his opioid dependence. He's seeing addiction specialists and still seeking relief for his new chronic pelvic pain. This is a stark reality of opioids used for post-operative pain control. Six to 10% of surgical patients become new persistent opioid users. And we now have evidence after urological surgery. Berger and colleagues use the Optum Insight database, which includes about 60 million privately insured patients. And they evaluated opioid naive patients who underwent urological surgery from 2010 to 2014. They defined persistent opioid use as filling a prescription within 91 to 180 days after discharge and chronic use as 10 or more refills or an opioid supply of 120 days or more in the year following discharge. Female sling surgery is a common surgery we do in FPMRS. It's an outpatient ambulatory surgery, 30 minutes or less. And even after a simple surgery like this, the risk of persistent opioid use was 6.8%. And in fact, the chronic opioid use rate was 0.6%. Now this seems like a low number, but the rate of chronic opioid use in the non-surgical population is only 0.14%. And so a woman who's undergoing a simple outpatient sling surgery has an almost four times higher risk of chronic opioid use when prescribed opioids for post-operative pain. The problem with the just-in-case prescription is several fold. First, there's the portion size effect. Look at the portion sizes in 1960 compared to 2011. And understandably, when more food is offered, more is eaten. And the same holds true for opioids. When more opioids are prescribed, patients in turn use more opioids. We already talked about the problem of persistent opioid use. Another issue is diversion into the community. In fact, 71% of patients with opioid substance use disorders receive that drug through a family member or friend who was legally prescribed that opioid. Now we have made strides nationally in reducing the number of opioids prescribed. 
And in fact, it's the lowest it's been in the last 14 years for which we have data at around 47 opioid prescriptions per 100 persons. But even in 2019, the most recent year we have data, dispensing rates continue to remain very high in certain areas across the country, those seen here in red and orange. Unfortunately, overdose deaths exploded in 2020. In 2015, there were only 52,000 total overdose deaths, but in 2020, that number has almost doubled to 93,000. And this is clearly attributed to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic with a spike in overdose deaths soon after the epidemic became a, a national problem. A combination of social isolation, economic stress, and disrupted access to treatment facilities and providers have contributed to this spike in overdose deaths. So what do the data show for pain management in FPMRS surgery? Well, patients often wonder how much pain they should expect after surgery, and we now have data. On a pain scale with zero signifying no pain and 10 being the worst possible pain, a, retro, a large retrospective series of around 1,800 patients showed that the mean pain on discharge was 2.5. We also have data from two randomized controlled trials. The first trial looked at daily pain scores and they found that the mean pain score was around 5.2 on day one, at which subsequently decreased to about 2.7 by day seven. When looking at pain scores on a weekly basis, pain scores, the worst daily pain score started out around four and by week four was about 0.7. So patients can be counseled that their pain will be worse, especially in post-operative day one, can be as high as five on a, a zero to 10 pain scale but will decrease down to about three to four by the end of week one and down to less than one by week four. It helps for patients to know what's normal and how much time it will take for them to start feeling better. Another interesting finding was that pain scores varied by age. You can see the pain score on the y-axis on the right, and you can see age categorized by decade on the x-axis. And you can see from the red bar graphs that pain scores were lower with each consecutive increase in the age category. So elderly patients had lower pain scores, and this may have to do with changes in the nervous system associated with age. So how many opioids do patients actually use? We now have several studies that looked at the the num median number of oxycodone tablets used in the context of a multimodal analgesia regimen. And this ranged anywhere from one to three tablets of five milligrams of oxycodone. What was really interesting is that the, the, the percentage of pa patients who didn't require any opioids, which ranged anywhere from 30 to 44%. Now, some of these numbers may seem lower because of including those who didn't use any opioids when calculating that mean or median number of 
of oxycodone tablets used. In this study, they only looked at the patients who ended up using opioids, and they found that the number of opioids used was much higher in the patients who underwent abdominal reconstructive surgery, and then subsequently lower for lap or robotic reconstructive surgery and lowest for those undergoing vaginal surgery. Also, they found that one of the strongest predictors of, post of needing opioids post-discharge was how many narcotics were used in the hospital. If patients didn't require opioids while in the hospital, they didn't require it post-discharge. What about opioid-specific counseling? In several subspecialties, such as breast, orthopedic, and general surgery, opioid-specific counseling has decreased postoperative opioid use. A randomized controlled trial on the impact of opioid-specific counseling on opioid consumption and disposable six weeks after epidermis surgery uh, used a opioid prescription pamphlet that was given preoperatively describing how opioids work, how to safely store opioids, as well as a pamphlet and counseling on how to dispose of opioids postoperatively, found that there was no difference in opioid consumption, but the appropriate disposal rate was much higher in the group that received counseling. What is the data on patient satisfaction? A randomized controlled non-inferiority trial of reduced versus routine opioid prescriptions found that those who received a reduced prescription of only five tablets, uh, their satisfaction was non-inferior to those receiving a routine prescription of 28 tablets. What is the data on refills? In that same randomized controlled trial, in the reduced opioid prescription arm did require more opioid refills uh, at 15%. And several cohort studies have found that the refill rate ranges anywhere from six to 7%. And this is in the context of using multimodal analgesia. Also of interest is that the opioid refill rate varied by age. And you can see here that women less than 40 years of age had an 18% refill rate compared to only about 5% in those women who are 70 and older. So now that we have all this data, what do we do next? First, preoperative counseling on expectations of pain and how to control it. Second, considering intraoperative nerve blocks. And I've put a question mark here because the evidence regarding intraoperative nerve blocks is still sparse. Third, we should be taking advantage of non-opioid multimodal therapy, including acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Fourth, we should individualize opioid prescriptions. Some women may not even need opioids. And finally, we should be counseling patients regarding safe opioid storage and disposal. So first, preoperative counseling. Many of my patients complain of constipation after pelvic reconstructive surgery, especially if they have a posterior porphyry. And in fact, a study found, uh, looking at complications after prolapse surgery, found that one in 24 women are readmitted after surgery, and most commonly, this is for vaginal adhesions, urinary retention, infection, and constipation. Now, a reminder that pre-op bowel, bowel prep 
is not the answer. We already have a Cochrane systematic review that has shown that a preoperative bowel prep doesn't help with assessment of the operative field, doesn't help with reducing stooling on the operative field, or doesn't increase difficulty handling bowel. And it also doesn't decrease the mean time to the first bowel movement. What does work is dietary modification, including increasing fluid and fiber intake, early mobilization, chewing gum, and when using medical therapy, using laxatives with proven efficacy like polyethylene glycol, lactulose, psyllium, or senicides instead of doxycycline. Many women who have to go home with a urinary catheter complain of bladder spasm, and opioids aren't going to help with this type of pain. These women should be encouraged to use antimuscarinics for cramping and spasms related to that indwelling urinary catheter. And finally, although opioid-specific counseling didn't decrease opioid consumption, it did increase the appropriate disposal rate, which is important for preventing opioids being diverted into the community. The American College of Surgeons has uh, wonderful handouts on the website listed here that can be given to patients preoperatively to help with your counseling efforts. And it provides guidance on how to manage pain when it's mild, as well as how to manage it when it's more severe. It also provides important information on the utility of non-opioid therapy like ibuprofen, and even reminding patients that they can wait to fill their opioid prescription to see if they actually need it. There are several intraoperative nerve blocks that are pertinent to FNRS surgery. A paracervical block involves injecting local anesthetic lateral and posterior to the uterocervical junction. And this helps with the experience of visceral pain in the uterus, cervix, and upper vagina. There is moderate evidence showing the utility of a paracervical block during vaginal hysterectomy. A transversus abdominal plane block involves local anesthetic being injected between the internal oblique and transversus abdominal muscles, providing analgesia to the lower intra-abdominal wall. There's insufficient evidence to recommend the routine use of this in FPMRS abdominal surgery, but surgeons should use their own discretion. And finally, a pudendal nerve block involves injecting local anesthetic bilaterally into the pudendal nerves, providing analgesia to the S2, S4 distribution of the perineum. There was a randomized control trial that looked at pelvic floor injections with bupivacaine and dexamethasone, and they found that pudendal nerve blocks with these medications did not improve postoperative pain. Again, patients should use their own discretion. Uh, providers should use their own discretion in using these nerve blocks. Finally, non-opioid multimodal analgesia is key. Acetaminophen, the mechanism of action is not entirely known, but we suspect that it decreases the central production of prostaglandin, may activate cannabinoid receptors, and it's been shown to reduce postoperative pain, nausea, vomiting, and opioid use. And it works synergistically with NSAIDs which is more effective together compared to monotherapy. NSAIDs decrease prostaglandin production by blocking the cyclo cyclooxygenase enzyme, also been shown to decrease perioperative pain and opioid use. At our institution, we give acetaminophen one gram prior to surgery. We often give ketorolac during surgery and after 
Postoperatively, we recommend patients take ibuprofen and acetaminophen around the clock, taking one or the other medication every three hours. We should individualize post-op opioid prescriptions and consider no opioids, especially in those who didn't require opioids while admitted. We based on the data that I've presented, we should consider fewer opioids for elderly patients and those undergoing vaginal or endoscopic surgery. Younger patients, those with a smoking history, comorbid depression, anxiety, chronic pain, or a prior history of opioid use are at risk for poorly controlled pain and requiring more opioids. So you may wanna have pain management on board for these patients. And finally, for an opioid prescription, you should consider a maximum five to seven day supply and probably up to five tablets of oxycodone five milligrams would be adequate. Thankfully, due to e-prescribing, refills are easy, much easier to do. And so prescribing a lower amount is not a burden since we can easily prescribe refills. And lastly, patients should be counseled on appropriate opioid disposal returning unused opioids to a government-approved safe disposal center, disposing them appropriately in the trash, or flushing them down the toilet. For more resources, we now have a lot more guidance. There are guidelines um, published by various organizations, including our own AUA that recently published the rationale and strategies for reducing urologic postoperative opioid prescribing. Thank you for doing your part to decrease opioid prescriptions and to the AUA for making this a priority in this programming.